happen afterwards. So that was an encouragement to me anyway, that there is some improvement going on. Now I can preach longer, right, Rusty? That's why we're doing 35 verses this morning. <laughs> Actually, we are probably not going to do all 35 verses this morning. Um, I wanted to give you the, the big context, which is why I had Tom read it all. But there's, there's actually two major themes in this section of verses that we looked at this morning that Tom read. Um, and I've debated for a long time whether I want to just take one of the sections or take one of the themes, I mean, or take both themes and deal with both at the same time. I think I'm probably going to keep it a little shorter. And uh, because frankly, as I think about it, I don't know how I'm going to get through two themes all at once. So... Um, maybe I'm just too wordy, I don't know. So we're going to look at the first theme that we discover before we get into the second theme, Lord willing, next week. And we may actually take the second theme and spread it over two weeks. I haven't yet decided. So just want to let you know. Because it, the, the second major theme of, the, of this section is actually really, really important, not just from a historical standpoint. Neither one are just important from a historical standpoint. But the second theme is dramatically important in, in how Christians interact with other Christians. Appreciate your confession this morning, Tom, because it kind of interplays with that very thing. Um, but the first, the first um, major, what I would argue is a major theme of the text, we can flow through probably through verse 19, which is where we're going to be camping this morning. Tom just read it, but before we get started, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at the text a little bit more tightly. Let's pray. Lord, help us this morning as we consider your text that we will um, see this uh, theme that we discover in chapter 15, 1 through 19, that has been there before. Uh, we know it to be the case, but it kind of gets summed up here. And Lord, I pray that you will help us as we consider it, that we will recognize um, the emphasis that you place on this subject this theme. And Lord, I pray that our hearts will be uh, in agreement uh, with it and with you. So help us to understand it and to respond and um, to glorify you. In your name I pray. Amen. We know the storyline. Acts 15 is one of the more famous passages in the book of Acts. Um, it's as it's labeled in your book, in your Bible, yeah, probably at the very beginning of the chapter, it's labeled uh, the Jerusalem Council. Uh, is a time when, as a matter of fact, it is the first council, uh, and it's really the only biblically recorded council. But the church over the centuries, especially the early centuries, the first nine or ten centuries, uh, patterned themselves after the Jerusalem Council, whenever there was a major theological controversy. They'd come together, they'd wrestle with what the biblical answer is, and try to figure out what it is, and then they would come up with uh, dogma, as it were, statements that would declare this is what God is actually teaching in the Scriptures, and that is not. Uh, many of the controversies, like the Pelagian controversy and numerous other ones, were addressed way back, you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred A.D., addressing these dramatic, um, what oftentimes, almost inevitably, ended up being a separation between heresy and orthodoxy. And this is really the first time that it happens, and it is the biblical time when it happens, where the church in the Scriptures gets together to deal with a major controversy. We saw the controversy earlier 
uh, where people were talking about the need to be circumcised. It shows up again here in chapter 15. You'll notice right away in verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, that is to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas are, were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, I want to pause on this just for a second. The issue of the day was an issue of circumcision. And that obviously flows out of the Old Testament law. In order to be a Hebrew, in order to be uh, uh, Jewish, truly Jewish, in order to be blessed by God, or to be more specific, in order to receive the blessings of God, in order to have any hope of receiving the blessings of God as described in Deuteronomy, and to avoid the curses that are listed in Deuteronomy from God towards unfaithfulness, one of the things that was necessary was circumcision. If you're not circumcised, you would not receive the blessings. You would receive the curses. That's what the Scriptures record throughout the Old Testament, explained very clearly in the book of Deuteronomy, later in the book of Deuteronomy. When Christ came, He came to what? The law. He came to fulfill the law. The law, in other words, all through the Old Testament, the law was pointing not to do it well, but it was pointing to you can't do it. And so it was pointing to, number one, you can't fulfill it. Number two, it was pointing to, Christ will fulfill it. The Redeemer, the Messiah, will completely in every way fulfill it. And as a result of that, today we either stand before God as people who have His righteousness because He fulfilled the law, or we stand before God condemned. I tell this to people all the time, because I hear people say it all the time, my goal in the way I live my life is that all through the end of the day, I will hear, when I'm standing before God, I'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I always remind them, you do realize the reason why you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant is not because of your righteousness, but because of uh, an alien righteousness. It's not yours, it's Jesus' righteousness. And, and so in the judgment, what is being observed is not how well you did. It is What is being observed is the righteousness of Christ because He ran well. Correct? How well did He run? Perfectly well. Perfectly well. And that's exactly what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3 when he talks about having a righteousness that's, that's not his own. Because my own righteousness ultimately at the end of the day will what? It will set me up to receive the curses, right? My righteousness will only set me up to receive the curses. Well, there were some people in Antioch, we see in verse 1, that didn't understand this. That's what it says. Some men came down from Judea. So that means it's, it's happening in Judea. This teaching is happening in Judea, right? They're coming from Judea and are teaching in Antioch, contrary to what Paul and Barnabas are teaching, in effect they're saying, it's good that you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's a good thing. That's important. It's necessary. But they're going on, that's the idea, they're going on and saying what? Unless, yeah, that's right, the big word but. They're saying but, unless you are circumcised, what? You cannot be saved. End of verse 1. 
Now again, I want you to understand, that was the controversy of the day. And it's really important that we don't leave this merely, we recognize the historical setting, we study it within its historical setting, but we must recognize, and I think this is the major theme that we can drag out of this text, that this is the issue they're dealing with, right? And it is a theological issue, correct? It's an inherently theological issue. But what we need to understand is that we cannot keep this passage merely isolated, as so often we see in the Scriptures, to only its historical setting, right? What's the big thing that, that, that is being addressed here? Is theology important? Isn't that the question? Is theology important? Or to put it a different way, is understanding the Scriptures correctly important? And the answer is, it has to be yes. And let me just say it this way. When we look at verse 1 by itself, we could argue right off of verse 1, Paul and Barnabas could be right, and the Judaizers could be wrong, or the Judaizers, that is these people who are teaching about circumcision from Judea, they could be right, and Paul Barnabas could be wrong, right? Could be the one at this point, just looking at verse 1, right? In isolation of the rest of the Scriptures. Either one could be right, but the one thing we know, they both can't be right, correct? They both can't be right. Or they both could be wrong. Absolutely. They both could be wrong, but both cannot be right. Does that make sense? So either Paul and Barnabas are right, or these teachings of circumcision are right, or they're both wrong. But they both can't be right. Theology matters. Interpreting the Scriptures matters. Does that make sense so far? So the, the challenge that we see here is who's right. Now again, please understand, when we look at this text historically, they're wrestling over circumcision, but more specifically, they're wrestling over the issues of, but more specifically than just theology generally, in this case, they're wrestling over the issues of soteriology, salvation, right? The issues of salvation. Now, why am I camping on verse 1 so long? It's because of this. Theology is important. Interpreting Scripture correctly is important. It is. What that means, friends, is, and you see this not just here, but you've seen it in other passages coming up to this, and we'll see it continuing on, and you'll see it in the epistles as well. Every single epistle is written because people are understanding the Scriptures and people are understanding theology wrong or wrongly. Does that make sense? Every single one of them are addressing that. So for Paul and Peter and James and Jude and whoever wrote Hebrews and ultimately God, because those are inspired texts, do you think theology is important? And do you think correctly understanding the Scripture is important? This is really important. Why is this important? Because here is a general theme. It's been this way for a long, long time, many decades. 
if I may just sum it up in the words that are oftentimes presented, it is this. Theology divides. And it's presented not in a positive way, but in a negative way. Well, we just want to love people. We just want to have a loving congregation. Right? Is that what you hear a lot? We have differences. Yeah, but you know what? We just want to, we just want to love one another because the big theme is we're called to love. And are we called to love? We absolutely are. It just begs the question is how do, what does love look like as you were talking about this morning? But too often today, what do most Christians... Now, you have some Christians that just live for the controversy, right? There are some people like that. But generally speaking... What do we find more often than not? An avoidance of controversy. An avoidance of deep, the deep things of the scriptures. And, and, and wrestling with, really wrestling with scriptures. Really wrestling with understanding what exactly does God mean when he says blank. Whatever the blank is. What we find oftentimes is there is a a strong avoidance and dislike of wrestling with those things. But it's interesting how Paul responds here. Verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. (laughs) Do you hear Paul and Barnabas here saying, well, guys, you know what? I know we have a disagreement, but you know what? We all love Jesus. Is that what you see? Is there even any hint there of that? It says there's no small dissension, right? You know what that means? It means that Paul and Barnabas are, are grabbing the bull by the horns and saying, we're going to make as much ruckus as we have to make to make sure the truth is proclaimed. That's what he's saying. That's what it means. What, 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 what Luke is saying about this thing that happened in Antioch is that for Paul and Barnabas, the truth about salvation, the truth about what God revealed in his word, is so important that the difference cannot be swept under the rug. It cannot be avoided. It must be addressed straightforward and as aggressively as necessary to get the truth clear. That's why it says, verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. It's an ongoing thing. It's dissension, which means what? It means Ken says A, and Charles says B, and they're saying, and Ken keeps saying A, and Ken keeps saying, or I'm sorry, and Charles keeps saying B, and Ken keeps trying to argue A, and why he's holding to A, and Charles is continuing to argue B, and why he's holding to B. And more importantly, why they're correct from the Scriptures. And the whole goal in, in Paul and Barnabas addressing these people from Judea is this. Let's see who has the robust and correct understanding of the Scriptures. This is what God says. Let's see what it is that God declares. And why is it so important for Paul and Barnabas? 
Why can't they just let it be? What do you think? Absolutely. If he's preaching another gospel, let him be accursed, even an angel. Absolutely. Because, once again, God's truth is important. What he's declaring is crucially important. And we do not have the privilege of saying it's not. Now, let me, let me clarify something real quick. Not every aspect of theology is equally important. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm going to take a step back here real quickly to make, make sure and clarify it as, as well as I possibly can. A friend of mine described it to me this way and, and it stuck with me over the years. And so I just want to present it to you real quick. He called it the cone of certainty. And I found it very helpful. Maybe it'll be helpful to you. Think about a cone like this. Upside down, cone like this. Obviously narrower at the top. Super, super narrow at the top. Really wide at the bottom. Get the picture? All theology, all biblical teaching, all biblical declaration fits somewhere in that cone. More importantly, our understanding of it and the emphasis of it in the Scripture. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot more that's going to fit at the bottom of the cone than the top of the cone, right? Does that make sense? A whole lot more fits at the bottom than the top. The idea of a cone of certainty is the higher I get up in the cone, the more certain I am. Now, my presumption is that I'm certain because God has declared. Does that make sense so far? Like, for example... Real down low in the cone of certainty. If you go to Genesis chapter 6, where they talk about the, the sons, what is it, sons, of, sons of God and the, and the daughters of men. And th- this thing has been debated for ever since probably it's been written, what that means. You know where that fits on the, what the answer to what, the, what that all is? It probably fits really low in the cone of certainty. Because we don't have a whole lot of data to understand it. We don't have a whole lot of corollary passages to bring it to bear, to clarify it. We can get, maybe get some ideas of what that means and all, but it's kind of low on the cone of certainty, isn't it? For Paul and Barnabas, you know what was really high in the cone of certainty? Really high, which means super dogmatic. You know what was really high up there? Salvation by, by uh, grace through faith in Christ alone. That was right up in the point of the cone. And you know the result of that was? For Paul and Barnabas? No small dissension and lots of debate. Now sometimes Christians, again, get caught up in arguing and debating and having a great dissension over stuff at the bottom of the cone. And it's needless divisiveness. Does that make sense? And I would argue it's worse than that because it's keeping us from discussing and debating and dissenting over the things that are really essential. Because we only have so much time, right? We only have so much time. That doesn't mean we, we, we're only dissenting on the things at the very point. Well, there's other things. It's just that as it works its way down the cone, we become less and less certain. Right? Does that make sense? 
I become less and less certain as it works its way down. So there's things that, that are absolutely necessary to go to war over. And there's things that we can discuss, but at the end of the day, we know like, yeah, I'm just not really confident where I'm at on that. Be- and, and it's not because I don't have enough, I don't have enough study. It's just, and looking at it, like there's, I'm not getting any resolution because there's not enough d- data. So I, I say it to say that it's not only, well, we've got to fight over circumcision only. I mean, that today is, for most of us, is not an issue. Any of you all have any real fights over circumcision in the last, uh, last month or year or ten years? Anybody? Anybody? It's not, it's not really an issue anymore for the most part. Now, if you're Jewish and a believer, it may be an issue still, right? It may. That doesn't mean it's not real high in the, in the cone because it is, isn't it? It's real high in the cone because God made it real high in the cone, didn't he? He made it really clear. But for Paul and Barnabas, this was the issue. And what I'm trying to get across at this point when we look at verses 1 and 2 is there's more than just that in the cone. For example, if I may just throw this out here. I feel very comfortable with saying very high in the cone in my thinking of the Scriptures is the issue of eternal security. I think eternal security is way up, jammed up high in the cone. You don't believe in eternal security? There's going to be a lot of debate. There's got to be no small discussion. Does that make sense? If you believe, for example, real high in the cone, for me, and should be for everybody, if you believe that this side of glory, we can live a sinless, perfect, a perfect life. There's going to be no small discussion. <laughs> and there's going to be a lot of debate. Because to believe that is to deny Scripture. It is going to be to deny Scripture. There's a lot of things. And some of those that I just mentioned are really common today. In fact, both of them are. They're very common today. And I'm not going to relent on those. Because I'm absolutely convinced in what the Scriptures say. And I think it's really, really clear. And there's a number of other things that fall in those same categories. What am I trying to get across in verse 1 and 2? It is this. I'll say it again. It's a major theme of the text. Theology is important. The implication of this text is that true believers are in a position, no, not as soon as they're saved, but true believers are in a position to do what? To be able to what? Yes, to bring God's Word to bear in these essential things. And to bring God's Word to bear effectively. That you know the Scriptures so that you are able to discuss. So that you are able to defend. So that you are able to, yep, even use the word debate 
the issues because they're important. Now we all do, don't we? We are all able to have long extended conversations about a variety of things, aren't we? And even debate, aren't we? You don't believe that? Walk up to any other Christian you want in America probably right now and just say, so what do you think of Biden? Or what do you think of Trump? Or what do you think of Pence? Or what do you think of Kamala? Do you think you'll have a long discussion with most people except for Ken? Do you think? Say that again? Yeah. <laughs> you know it would happen, wouldn't it? You know it would happen. It would go on and on and on. Or, or about the, the riots going on. Do you think if you go up to any, any, almost any Christian and ask them, hey, what do you think about this? Do you think you're going to have discussion extended? And if you disagree with them, do you think that there's going to be debate? Why is it that we don't find that happening in our lives with regard to the truth? It's an interesting thought. Why is it that, that that's happening? Is it because we're all in agreement on everything? Do you think? If it is, then, then, then we're the most unique church in history. <laughs> I mean, all through the New Testament, isn't that what's happening all the time? There's disagreement. Wrestling with stuff. Disagreement. Struggling. So, in verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion, or dissension, I'm sorry, and debate... With them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So the church said, and Antioch said, hey, I'll tell you what, why don't, why don't you guys go down to, down to Jerusalem, get together with the elders and the apostles and, and work together and figure this thing out. We want to hear from everybody. Paul and Barnabas agreed. That's a great idea. So they came down. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed... Uh, through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Stop there for a second. There's a major controversy going on, isn't there? Isn't there? I mean, it's gigantic. It's, it's the very core of what salvation is. It's either by grace through faith alone or it's grace and works or faith and works. Sounds like the difference between Protestant, conservative Protestantism and Catholicism, even today, isn't it? Same, same debate. Yet at the same time, in the midst of this crazy controversy, as Paul and Barnabas are heading down to Jerusalem, somewhat of an aside, but an important aside, as they're traveling, isn't it interesting they're not stopping at the churches along the way and saying, can you believe what's going on in Antioch? Can you believe these idiots up in Antioch that believe you need to be circumcised? You're chuckling, Ken, because you know that's what, what most conversations sound like, right? It's <laughs> exactly what it is. Now, when Paul and Barnabas stop in the various towns along the way, where does it, where's their heart? Their heart is hot after what? What God is doing. That the gospel's on the march. That the Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. That be people are becoming inflamed 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what they're thrilled about. And they just can't help but proclaim what God is doing. Isn't that something? That doesn't sound like you and me too much, does it? When we get a big, big controversy, the first thing we do is we start rallying people around our cause, right? But for Paul and Barnabas, the, their cause was what? Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God is doing in people's lives. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they did what? They get there with the express purpose of going to figure out this controversy, right? That's the whole reason why they're going. And when they get there, what do they do? They talk about what God's doing, <laughs> what he's accomplished. That, why is that? Because that's, that's what really inflames them, isn't it? And, and because Christ inflames them, obviously they're trying to defend the truth, but they're thrilled about what God is doing. They're, the evidence is clear. God's on the march. God's moving. God's transforming lives. Oh, by the way, we have this problem we need to sort out too. Correct? But their emphasis is upon what God is doing and what he's all about. So, again, they're welcomed. They declare all that God has done with them. And isn't it interesting? The implication of the text, 4 to 5, is that while they're proclaiming all that God has done, they haven't even brought the problem up. Have they? Look what it says in verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it's necessary to circumcise them in order to keep them or for, in order, uh, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Yes, but what's interesting, it's not Paul and Barnabas that brought up the problem, is it? Paul and Barnabas are there, even though they were sent to figure out the problem to Jerusalem, they come to Jerusalem to the church and they proclaim how great God is. All they're doing is trumpeting, wow, everyone, look at what God is doing among the Gentiles. And immediately, a group of people, and interestingly enough, they're described as believers, aren't they? That's kind of intriguing to me. They're described as believers. Who belong to the party of Pharisees. In other words, they are, if I use the term, super steeped in the law, aren't they? They're, they're saturated in the law. Aren't they? Okay. So some of them, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and in order to keep them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, this is going to become really important for next study next week as well. So hold this verse in your mind for next week. But if I, I'm just going to say this at this point in time. What we have here, first of all, they're described as believers by Luke. Correct? And that's by the inspiration of God. These are inspired words. They're believers they're from the Pharisees, the, fa the family or tribes of Pharisees. So they, they're steeped in the law, and here they are confusing the gospel of grace through faith alone with gospel of grace through faith plus law. Correct? Now it's really easy to say, how is it possible that a believer could be that way? I suspect what we're finding is there's a group of people in Jerusalem who have recently, who are of the group of Pharisees, who have recently what? 
that have been converted recently, they, they have not yet connected all the dots. They've not yet had time to figure out all these really important connections. So they believe in Jesus, but they're, this is the first time they're hearing about Gentiles being saved. And that flies in the face of everything these infant believers, what? Have studied none their whole life. Does that make sense? This is 180 degrees out of phase with everything they've known. Their entire life. So in their mind, they're defaulting back to the Old Testament Scriptures and saying, wait a second, the law says that they need to be circumcised. They haven't figured it all out yet. Interestingly enough, it says next, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So immediately there was a gathering of who? The apostles and elders came together to figure out what's going on. Because the evidence is very clear. In the Jerusalem church, there is a major division. Paul and Barnabas proclaiming that the gospel is going to the Gentiles exposed it. Seemingly, the church in Jerusalem hadn't figured it out yet. But when Paul and Barnabas spoke, it was exposed very quickly. Verse 7, after there had been much debate in which other places in the Scriptures say that some of that debate was in between Peter and Paul. There was quite a debate between Peter and Paul. Because initially, Peter and Paul disagreed, and the Scriptures say that, that Paul confronted Peter to his face. Isn't it interesting that the very first person in the text, therefore, that speaks up is Peter? And that's not because of his brashness. It's because of repentance. Peter speaks up and he says, it says there, he stood up and said to them, that is all the elders and apostles, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Referring primarily to chapter 10 and 11 of the book of Acts. Early on, God had me be the one. Of course, then Paul is saved and then he takes over. Is, and from here on, this, by the way, is the last time we see Peter in the book of Acts. It's a very important time. You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God knows, and, I'm sorry, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So Peter, the apostle, is standing up before the elders and the apostles saying, First, number one, you know that I was called to go to the Gentiles, and I did. And the result was, and so he's reviewing what God had done in, in his experience as well, as the, and it matches what's going on with Paul and, and, and Barnabas. He said, what? And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. He said, listen, I was circumcised. This is in effect what he's saying. I was circumcised. They were not and yet God saved them by faith just as he did you and I. That's what he's arguing. They were saved by faith. No distinction. They received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Verse 8 and verse 9, no distinction. He makes that statement very clearly. No distinction. Verse 10, Peter goes on. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test 
by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. What did Peter just declare? Why are, he said to the elders, the apostles, in effect, he said, guys, you know we couldn't keep it. And the implication is, guys, you know that the law's purpose was not to keep it, but was to expose that you can't. And so the result was evident that we were crushed under its weight. So why, if we who are crushed under, his, under its weight, understanding what its purpose was, why would we put that crushing weight on the Gentile believers? Right? Does that make sense? So why would we put and place a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Ever. Verse 11, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Right? You hear that? Verse 11. Peter declares unequivocally, no, it is not circumcision in any way. As a matter of fact, implication is not about the law at all. Right? The law, there's no aspect of the law that will save. He says very clearly, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Not grace plus, grace alone. Do you sense this? That if I may just step back again, do you sense that theology is important? Do you sense that what God has revealed in the Scriptures is really important? Do you sense that for the apostles and elders, it was really important to defend it and to argue it and have dissension over it? You get that sense? I mean, even Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace, but to what? Bring a sword. Do you sense there's, there's a potential for sword activity here? I'm not talking literally. I'm talking about figuratively dividing people. Do you sense it? It's really clear. What is really stunning is verse 12. What does it say in verse 12? And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related the signs and wonders, or what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. That little statement in the beginning of 12, and the assembly fell silent, is really, really important. And it's probably the first indication that although the elders and uh, apostles gather together to consider this matter, it's the first indication, because it uses the word the assembly, which most likely is not referring to the elders and apostles, it's referring to the entire church. If you get the picture, the elders and apostles gather together in front, of the, in front of the congregation and they're the ones arguing it. Got the picture? And according to the greater scriptures, initially it's Paul and Peter are at odds. And Paul is confronting Peter and Peter repents. And he stands up and proclaims in front of the elders and apostles and the entire church. There it is. And that's why the beginning of verse 12 is so important. Remember where this whole section started? Not verse 1, but uh, um, verse 5. But some believers who belong to the Pharisees, 
Notice what it says in verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. If they were unrepentant, these Pharisees that are believers, if they were unrepentant, would they have fallen silent, do you think? Not even close. This is, this is key because you have believers, right? Paul and Barnabas and the elders and the rest of the apostles are standing up way up. They've crawled way up high in the cone of certainty. And they're arguing about that, fighting over what this means. And as Paul is confronting Peter and probably there's other confrontations going on amongst them in front of the whole congregation, I mean, it's probably kind of raucous. If the truth comes out and they come to agreement. And as Paul and Barnabas then, as they come to agreement, Paul and Barnabas begins to proclaim the truth, the whole assembly becomes quiet. Why? Well, because everybody's falling in line. It's coming to agreement. It's come to agreement that salvation is by grace through faith alone. And it settles down and they get quiet. You had a question? Yes. No. Oh yeah, not, it's not saying that all the Pharisees got saved, but those who were saved were there. Those who were believers that are the Pharisee sect are there. Yes. No, not all the Pharisees are believers, but it seems that the Pharisees that are there at this point in the church meeting are believers. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The evidence is that the, the, the silence is the evidence as they listened. The silence is the evidence that the people who were in disagreement in Jerusalem, not in Antioch yet, but in, in, in Jerusalem, the believers that are there at the church meeting are either remaining in agreement because they were in agreement from the, from the beginning or they're repenting and embracing the truth. And so what happens next, good point, Jim, what happens next is they listen to Paul and Barnabas as they relate what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. As he begin, as Paul and Barnabas, because they saw the most of it, right? Peter saw a little bit, Acts 10, 10 and 11, he saw it. But Paul and Barnabas have seen it dramatically like nobody else in Jerusalem has. And he's proclaiming to them, or they're proclaiming to, to the church, this is exactly what God, God is doing in and among the Gentiles. And there is no, the implication is there is no circumcision going on. There is no following the law going on. There is no embracing the law for salvation's sake going on. But God is doing great things, amazing things, wondrous things among the Gentiles. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, so James gets up next. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, referring to Peter, uh, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the word of the prophets agreed, just as it is written. James gets up and he says, hey, we've heard the testimonies. But what we need, along with the testimonies, is a clear connection to the Scriptures. Right? A clear connection to the Scriptures. And so he turns to Joel. 
as, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that is fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all Gentiles who are called by His name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What James just did is he said, you know, all the stories we're hearing, all the, 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 the illustrations, examples that are being presented by Peter and by Paul and Barnabas, all the theological wrestlings that have taken place, it all is in agreement with the Old Testament. The Gentiles will be saved and they will actually, according to the context, will be used to rebuild the ruins of the tent of David. That's what it says. Verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write, and then we'll go on verse 20 next week. So the, the declaration is really clear. James, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, the united front of the elders and the rest of the apostles, and now the whole church. We should not put the yoke upon the Gentiles. A yoke that we could not bear. A yoke that was too great. Kind of a, does it remind you of anything when he starts talking about this yoke he could not bear? Does it remind you of anything? Yes. Yes. They're drawing directly from Jesus' statement. The yoke that we're trying to put on Gentiles even we could not bear as natural-born Jews. And without even saying it, the idea is, I want to remind you what Jesus said. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that true? It absolutely is true. Why do I stay on this text this long? Because of the great theme of 1 through 19. The great theme of, of 19 is that theology is important. That the Scriptures are important. That the truth declared is essential. And the underlying emphasis in that theme is this. It is essential for true believers to two things. Number one, Know their theology and the Scriptures. Number one. To be intimately knowledgeable with the theology and the Scriptures. And number two is essential that the true believer is one who defends the truth of the Scriptures and defends true theology against all comers. You know, it's interesting. You look through the Scriptures and you never find a time recorded. Genesis through Revelation, you never find a time recorded where uh, a, a, somebody started teaching something that was really bad. And it's recorded that the believers are like, eh, it's not worth it. 
agree to disagree or whatever the case may be. You know that never shows up except in places like Jude and Second Peter and Revelation 2 and 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, by the way, is a, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's a really interesting one because it's not talking about the issues of salvation per se. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's an issue of sin. Guy's having sex with his mother-in-law. And the confrontation is not about the guy having sex with his mother-in-law. Paul pulls out all the stops not to address the guy having sex with his mother-in-law that's in the church. Quite to the contrary, he pulls out all the stops to address and confront the church for not dealing with it. For Paul, you know what? That's really high in the cone of certainty. The issues of sin are clear in the Scriptures. (laughs) And for Paul, it's like, are you kidding me? What's wrong with you, church? You're not dealing with it. This right here, front and center. Deal with this. And in effect, what Paul says, deal with it or you're going to be destroyed. For Paul, that's really essential. You, the church is avoiding dealing with something that must be dealt with. Paul is not. In the book of Jude... The church is not dealing with things that must be dealt with. In 3 John, most of the church is not dealing with what must be dealt with. Only one person is. Only one. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the church will not deal with what ought to be dealt with. What must be dealt with. But he says, but you, Timothy, however, continue to cling to what you know and become convinced of from the Scriptures. Singular, you, Timothy, continue with it. See, every step of the way. Got a lot of people in agreement? Nobody in agreement. Cling to what you know is true. It's always a strong, repeated emphasis in the Scriptures. But how can you cling to what you know to be true if you don't know what's true because you don't know the Word? Does that make sense? How can you defend the truth if you don't know the truth? How can you stand up for correct theology if you don't know your theology? Does that make sense? How can you do it? I and mean, we all know that if you move outside of Bible and theology, my goodness. How can I defend politics if I don't know that there's a Republican and a Democrat party? <laughs> how can I do that? I can't. We all know that. I'm just using politics as an example. I'm not talking about politics. You get the point. How can I defend that my sports team is the best if I don't know the team exists? Or if I know nothing about the team. I can't. If I say if I say the Lakers is is the best team in the league, and you say, What do you mean? Why would you ever say that? You know, you know what my next answer is gonna be? Uh, 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 uh. I don't like to about the Lakers. I don't know anything. That's how stupid it would sound, right? <laughs> I mean, that. You get the point? It doesn't make any sense. 
But that's how we approach the scriptures all the time. And friends, the example that we have in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 19. Did I say 1 Corinthians? I mean Acts 15, 1 through 19. is so important for Paul and Barnabas and the elders and the rest of the apostles and I would argue the rest of the people of the church as well as they grew silent and listened and learned and grew was the scriptures are important. Theology is important. Truth is important. And the juice is always worth the squeeze. Especially the higher we get in the corner of, of certainty. What's that? And as they watch, can you imagine watching Peter change his mind live, real time, right there on the spot? Peter declares with just his example the reality that theology and truth is important. And he's willing to change. So that's, that's the call of the text today. It really is. Truth is important. Theology is important. The scriptures are important. And they're of utmost importance. And they, more than anything else in our world, deserve to be defended, debated, and even have great dissension over. Because God's worth it. Let's pray. Lord, help us. As we continue through this text next week and following that we will be reminded again, and I know we all give a verbal assent to the idea that the scriptures are important, that the truth is important, that theology is important, but too often in our lives, it just isn't. Because we know there's a severe price to be paid most times when we have to say to somebody, no, I believe that's wrong. Because we know most times people love being right more than they love the truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you will give us holy boldness and wisdom from above to be redemptive, to speak truth into people's lives so that they can be restored and redeemed, not to win arguments. There is no value to that. But so that your fame will be increased and your kingdom will spread through our world for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.